Well, good morning. morning. Kind of rough to be out here on a Saturday morning, isn't it? It's like robbing you of your favorite morning of sleep or something like that. Well, I'm going to be down here on the floor because this first lecture, I, uh, I don't use, I have PowerPoint, but I quit using it because uh, I'm going to be marching off. It's going to be a little bit zigzag, but uh, I'm going to mark off a timeline, my whole message. And with very few exceptions, we're only talking about a period of 25 years between the crucifixion of Jesus and how we know the message that we got in the earliest church has been preserved uh, as they gave it, especially regarding the center of faith, which of course is the gospel, and that concerns a minimum of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but more about that as we go. I'll tell you how I got into the field. My interest in apologetics, which let me just stop right there. I'll have a lot of end notes during this lecture, so here's an end note. Apologetics has nothing to do with apologizing. It's a New Testament word, and it actually means to defend. So you could be a defender of about anything. You could be a defender for political parties that are as widely separated as some Democratic Party and communism. I mean, you can be a defender of ethical positions. You can be a defender of religious positions. And even if you don't use the word, if you're doing that, that's the job of offering reasons and offering arguments against those who would come against you. It's very, very common in the New Testament. Um, For example, Acts chapters 13 to 19 is just, it's every chapter and almost every message that's given. Now, I, I came into this subject because I grew up with, I would have said, pretty severe doubts about the Christian faith. And my best friend was an atheist, and I didn't know if there was any basis to believe anything, or was it wishful thinking? How would I know? And when some Christians heard that I was struggling, they would kind of come alongside me and say, hey, have you heard of this evidence and this evidence and this evidence? And here's another exciting area. And oh yeah, last week on the news I heard this. You might want to check that out. And by the way, much more of that kind of stuff happens today than happened when I started. It just wasn't, it wasn't a topic anybody picked up on back in the uh, 60s. And uh, so I was kind of on my own. And I had to find some books and then I would in the bibliographies, it would refer me to another book, and that looks good, and get it, and kind of move on. And I was raised in a, a German Baptist church, and my pastor would say, I'd feel a lot better if you didn't read that stuff. Well, it wasn't bad stuff. It was just, it was defending Christianity. But he didn't think Christianity needed to be defended. He thought that um, 
faith was good enough. I mean, you know, you're familiar with the view. There's different Christian positions. And I would never trouble somebody who said, yeah, I'm out this morning because I'm interested in what you're saying, but I, purposely, I personally don't need it. Uh, faith is good enough for me. I've not questioned it. But maybe I'll have a chance to talk to one of my friends. So I came out. Um, I respect that kind of view. I don't think everybody should know the 20 evidences for this and 10 evidences for this. And it's a very complicated field. and There's a lot of good reasons. So I pursued them on my own. And, and I realized very early that if the resurrection of Jesus were true, then faith would be settled on that grounds alone. Because the resurrection is such a significant, central event that is not just the center of our faith, it can hold everything else based on it. It's like a, a basement or something on which you can build additional floors. So it just isn't, isn't true for itself, it's true for our most loved uh, doctrines and those which give us the most peace, including the very difficult times, like um, when there's a disaster, or when someone's sick, or when someone asks tough questions. And I knew very early on that the resurrection would supply that basis. So people say, well, is that when you started writing your books? Half my books are on the resurrection. <laughs> and somebody might say, well, 20 books on the resurrection and 20 books on other topics. Okay, why 20 books on the resurrection? Why'd you repeat it? Well, for the most part, I wasn't repeating things. There's that much material. In fact, right now, I'm writing what I call my magnum opus because I want to leave it with the church. And I'm writing a three-volume set of 3,500 pages on the resurrection. The vast majority of it, 70, 80 percent, I've never said before, and much of it isn't in any books. It's just what you find when you dig. But here's my thinking. If basements are that important, if key structures, weight-bearing uh, poles and, you know, in our home or in businesses or in this building. Uh, if they're that important, we better know why they're weight-bearing and what carries the weight. And somebody has to know the specifics and that it's done the right way and that indeed it does carry the weight. But when I was after it, I didn't really care. My doubts bothered me so badly. By the way, that's the second lecture. How to, not about my doubts, but how to deal with questions. That I, I realized the resurrection could theoretically bear that weight. But I didn't know how or if what people said about the resurrection is true. Because I was determined not to say this is true because the Bible says so. Now, you have to understand... I believe the Bible said so, and I believe the Bible is true, and I have no problem with people who don't need reasons. But I wanted to know uh, with the critics, 
with the Richard Dawkins. Actually, the people I'm dealing with are far more scholarly than Richard Dawkins. He, he kind of shoots off the, t he doesn't, well, I'll tell you what, there's an atheist in our country, he's British, but he teaches at one of our major state universities. And he says, Richard Dawkins makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. <laughs> Somehow we don't think of atheism that way. But, uh, so do we have that kind of a basis? Do we have weight-bearing doctrines that can take care of everything? And I'm here to tell you today we do, and I'm here to talk about how we can determine the truth of the resurrection. Now, I'm only going to use two passages today. I might mention other texts, but there's only two texts that I'm going to deal with today. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's the first, uh, well, it's pretty much the first 11 verses of the chapter, but I'm only going to hit a few high points. And then later, I'm going to flip over to the end of Galatians 1, the beginning of Galatians 2. And that was a continuous text in the early church because there were no chapter divisions in the early books. So you would go straight from chapter 1 into chapter 2 in the old days. We've got chapter dividing so that when your pastor says, turn with me to this passage, we could all be with the same passage. It's bad enough when we all have different translations. But at least you need to, you need to go to where the translation starts, right? You have to know the first verse. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul comes to the Corinthians, and he starts with an evangelistic message, first two verses. He says, when I came to you Corinthians, and we're going to give you a timeline, and that's what this timeline's about. When did he come, and when did he say this, and how do we know it's true? But he said, when I came to you Corinthians, I gave you the gospel. Now, okay, footnote number two. What's the gospel? Whenever the factual side, there's two sides to the gospel. What God provided for us and how we respond. Now, if you compare it to a very, maybe the most prominent thing in many of our lives, it might be like meeting the person you're going to marry and getting all the way to the altar. You know, it doesn't usually happen with the first person you meet. So you have to know what, when, why, and wherefore. You know, and you ask questions. And you can learn all about a person. And if you don't say, I do, um, you're not married. Now, you, don't, you may not want to be married. But if you want to be married, you need to say, I do. So there's two sides of marriage. Getting to know the person. We don't think very highly of somebody who just met somebody last night and ran off and got married the same night. I mean, that's the stuff they make movies out of, right? But it doesn't happen too often in real life. And if they do, I wonder what they were drinking. Um, you get to know about a person. Then you say, I do. Christianity is the same way. There's things that are true about Jesus. Combined with I do equals Christianity, the center, the heart of Christianity. And those three points, whenever the gospel is defined in the New Testament, other things are mentioned, but whenever it's defined, it's always the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Deity, death, resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection. Over and over and over. And this is most prominent in Paul's sermons 
and in the apostolic sermons in the book of Acts. The first half of Acts is about Peter, and uh, the, but, but others too, Stephen, James, and that's the birth of the church. So that's really where we're going to plug in today. So when Paul says, I came to you Corinthians, and I presented the gospel to you, he said, if you responded correctly, i.e., if you believed, or if this message was mixed with faith, then you're saved. And if you didn't respond, you're not. That's the first two verses. By the way, third footnote. We'll stop the footnotes here in a minute, but uh, just like a college class, right? Uh, third footnote. Talk about material and belief. Material and saying I do. There's more to a comparison of salvation and marriage than just the getting to know and saying I do part. In the New Testament, what you do to come to Christ, the marriage part, is usually typified by the word believe or faith. But the Greek word for believe or faith is different than the English word believe or faith. Uh, English believe can be a fairly vacuous term. You know, it can be, did you hear me? Something happened last night. You go, all right, I believe you. Well, you didn't even watch the news. I believe you, it's not that, and you know what that means? That use of belief is sort of like, it's not that big a deal, get off my back. Just, yes, I believe it, or that makes sense. That seems like where the world was going. Yeah, I can believe that. But it doesn't, it doesn't have a sense of jumping in with both feet and committing your life to a, to a passion, to a cause. And that's what the word belief in the New Testament means. It means to commit, to surrender to. Two authors, Peter and John, use the phrase walking in Jesus' steps as kind of a synonym for that process. Now, walking in the steps involves a lot more than, did you hear who won the game last night? Yeah, I believe I did hear that. We could even, you know, we use love that way too, right? I love my husband or wife, I love my children, and I love vanilla ice cream. It's like, really? Are we all the same? But we're not very discriminant in our choice of words sometimes. But believe is a strong term. So therefore, you've got the facts of the faith. What did you do with it? Then in verse 3, Paul says this. This is the key for our beginning this morning. Paul says, I gave you what I received. I gave you what I was given. And then this is a definition of the gospel. He says, Christ, and no, he doesn't, notice he doesn't call him Jesus, he calls him Christ. That's the deity part. He uses titles. Paul's most popular titles are Lord. He calls Jesus Lord. He calls Jesus Messiah. But Lord might be the most popular title, and it's a very lofty title. In fact, Romans 10.9, he defines the word Lord just three verses later, and he quotes the Old Testament to define the word. And guess what word he uses from the Old Testament? Jehovah. 
Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What does Lord mean? Three verses later, he quotes Joel, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and Lord is Jehovah. That is deity. We're not using a lesser word. We're using the word for for Jehovah. And so Paul says, you know, we're on sacred ground here. And that's what you're going to commit your life to if you know Christ. Anyway, that little footnote. Back to the message. I gave you what I was given. I passed on to you the truth that I myself received. And he gives a list Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose, appeared. And by the way, those are different things. We don't often distinguish them, but rose and appeared. Think of it this way. Rose is what happened inside the tomb. Appeared is what happened outside the tomb. How do you know he was raised? We saw him. How do you know he was dead? We buried him. So those four... Those four comments there are he, Christ, the person, died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, rose, and appeared, also according to the scriptures. And then Paul gives the, the longest verse of appearances, six appearances he mentions, three to persons, three to single persons, three to groups. All right, so that's the basis. Now, when we do history, historians are like other professionals. You have tools, and you have rules how to use the tools. This is a funny story in our family, but in 1990, that's horrible, what I was gonna start saying. Okay, let me back up, the funny part, isn't here yet. In 1995, my wife died of stomach cancer. After that, Eileen came into my life, and we were married, and we were sitting at dinner one night, and my four children were around the table, and in a famous family episode, she looked down at my kids, and we were all eating. We were just eating. You know, it's innocent. You're just picking things up with your not your fingers, but your. And she said to my children, that's not a shovel, it's a fork. I told her this later, but she, was, she didn't address it to me, she addressed it to my kids, and I looked down and I was holding the fork like a shovel. <laughs> okay, there's a point. In eating, you have tools and you have rules. When you build a road, you have tools and you have rules. When you go out to work on your lawn, you have tools and you have rules. You don't use one tool like another one. History has tools and rules. Among the tools and rules in history, that would be a whole graduate course, but two of the most important ones are the two E's, early and eyewitness. Now think about it. Early and eyewitness. 
eyewitness. Th think about it as easy as a, uh, a soccer match. If you grab the paper this morning and you, before you run out the door, you want to see what your favorite team did last night. Um, when you start studying it, you know there are certain ways to do things and certain, there's things you use, you need a ball, you need a net, but there certainly is rules. You can't just do anything you want. And in any sport, in any business, in the, in the resurrection too, in history, you want to interview eyewitnesses, you want somebody was there. So you open up the paper and you're looking for your favorite team. Now, I don't know if, if, if you folks do this when you check sports, but I often look at the city from which the article was written. Our articles in the States will start with, if the game's played in New York, you want it to say New York. You don't want it to say from wire services. That means somebody got things off the wire and I could have done that. I want somebody who was there. I want an eyewitness. And I would really want that eyewitness to be early. I don't want them to tell the story 40 years from now. I want it this morning before I walk out the door. So the best kinds of tools in history would be early eyewitnesses. Not just eyewitnesses, early eyewitnesses. I heard of a man years ago who wrote his memoirs of World War II, but he was writing them in about 1990. Well, nobody would, I don't think people would stop and say, that's a minimum of 45 years later. By definition, you must be a liar. Somebody would say, that's a little harsh. I can remember things from 45 years ago. Many of you here can remember things from 45 years ago. And how do you remember it accurately? Well, we have a phrase, two heads are better than one. You might have buddies. You might meet every year with a, 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 a band of brothers, we call it in our country, a group of soldiers who fought, say, in Germany, as my dad did, in, in uh, World War II. And if there are only five people left out of an original 20 that ran a, mess, uh, a mission, that's... Now, you say, well, that's not very early. This is way later. But you can say, hey, I wrote my story of that. I published an article in the paper. I've got a diary. I've got... You know, you've got recordings, you've got photographs. So you could have early data, and you keep the memory alive, and when you forget about something, you ask your colleague, did we do that before we did this, or was it the other way around? And that's the role of witnesses. And Paul says very importantly, I gave you what I was given. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to start down here, and I'm going to do a timeline. Because if two of our most important tools in history are early eyewitnesses, and we're going to see how these are used correctly, just because you're sitting with your buddies around a cup of coffee years later and you were there, doesn't mean you remember or are telling the story correctly. You may even purposely be telling the story false, to, falsely to... to not give credit to somebody that you don't want to have credit. There could be all kinds of ways to change.
And we want to know, how do we know the disciples told the story correctly? It's very important for us. All right. This is the death of Jesus. That's creation. That's 2017. And so we're in this timeline here. And this, this date, I'm only going to call it, it's usually said to be 30 AD, but I'm only going plus and minus from this point because I want you to see if it's early, how many years later, and who's doing the reporting. Do we indeed have early eyewitnesses? All right? Because a lot of people today, Dawkins is a great example. He will say things like, they don't have any data. Christians don't have any reasons. They just believe. Somehow they think faith is holy. But faith doesn't determine who won World War II. Faith doesn't determine who won the election. Talk about elections. When we came here last summer, we got here right after Brexit. So, I mean, you know, there's some big elections and there's some other elections. But faith doesn't determine who wins. There's a story to be told. And sometime, like the recent presidential election in America, sometimes what the polls say is true is not true. It's all got to work out, and you've got to ask, why this, why then, why now, etc. So we're going to ask the same questions. Here's Jesus. Now, if you ask the average Christian, how do you know he died on the cross? Christians are going to say, well, you know, we've got the Gospel of Mark, and Mark is only plus 40, 30 AD, 70 AD, approximately. And almost everybody's going to agree to this date. Mark's plus 40. Now, maybe you may put some of the Gospels back further. Conservatives often do. But I'm using the critics' dates on purpose. Today, when I really get into this, when I get up to Paul and start moving over that way, I'm only using critics' material because my point is, even with a minimum of knowledge, we have enough to show that Jesus is raised from the dead. On maximal knowledge, here's the way I can do it. If this is God's word, you folks tell me, if this is God's word, is Jesus raised from the dead? Yes. What if it's pretty much God's word, there's some small minor problems, but as a whole it's pretty trustworthy. Is Jesus raised from the dead on that Bible? Okay, what about this Bible? What about Richard Dawkins' Bible? What about a Bible that says, this is a joke? This is to Jesus what Homer's Iliad is to the city of Troy. Oh, by the way, was there a Troy? Oh, is it that bad? Was there a Trojan horse? Is it that bad? Well, I mean, Homer's more like poetry. And a lot of people think the New Testament is poetry and not an historical work. All right, so let me ask you. On this Bible, where the Bible is telling a story that may or may not be true, probably isn't true, on the, on the critical view, Richard Dawkins' view, is Jesus raised from the dead? On his Bible. I mean, it's there. The words are there, but no, not the fact. All right, here's what I'm here to tell you today. If this Bible's true, if the Bible's the Word of God, 
Jesus is raised from the dead. Surprise. If this is the Bible, it's true, and it's 90% reliable, Jesus is raised from the dead. I'm talking about people and their views. But if this view of the Bible is true, Dawkins' view, my thesis today is Jesus is still raised from the dead. I'm going to use their data to, to translate it. I'm going to use Homer's presuppositions and show you there was a Troy and a Trojan horse on his studies. So the worst could be would be this Bible and Jesus is still raised. That's where we're going. All right, so I'm going to be using their dates. This might be a little later than what you're used to hearing because I'm using their material. Mark's about plus 40. That's pretty good. What about that man that did his memoirs of World War II at plus 45? That's just about exactly Mark. Matthew, about 50 years later. Luke, about 55 or 85, 55 plus 30. And everybody puts John at about 95 or subtract 30 about 65 years later. This is the worst it gets in the Gospels. You go, what do you mean by worst it gets? I mean people can remember things just fine at 65 years. And if you say, yeah, but that was a very precious event to you, how can I trust your prejudice memory? That was a key event in your family. That was a key event in your nation. That's the subject you specialize in. I know you love it. How can I believe your approach? And that's where the two heads are better than one rule comes in. That's why you need early and eyewitnesses, plural. And it's better to have eyewitnesses in groups than it is to, people, to have people who are out in the field by themselves. You don't want one person left in the stands at the end of the game, and everybody's relied on that one person's testimony of what happened at the end of the game. It'd be really neat to have a bunch of reports. So you can go on internet today, wonderful thing that it is, and you can find, if you want to take the time, 10, 15, 20 different articles about what happened in the game last night. And you look for that little city there at the beginning, and the reporter was there. The reporter didn't get it from the radio or the TV. You want an eyewitness. Same rules, same tools and rules. So if this is as bad as it gets, we are potentially pretty good. Now, could John have skewed the evidence? Could these guys have lied? We'll come back to that. But time-wise, we're looking at early eyewitnesses. A, a new book just came out just a few years ago by a, a, a British scholar who's very well respected. His name is Richard Baucom. He's a professor at Cambridge. And he wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Interesting title when you're looking for early eyewitnesses. And he claims that he's one of the first ones to claim this in a while. He's putting the eyewitness back in John. He thinks the author of John was an eyewitness. And 65 years is not too far, especially when it's an eyewitness. And what if he has others who saw the same thing? Now, let's do a little comparison. 
I debated a guy uh, years ago. He was an atheist, and he was one of the angry atheist kinds. Now, he didn't have a good reputation. He had a reputation for being not too kind to people. But the weekend I was with him and we debated him, we kind of hit it off well. And every time we sat down to have a meal, he would always want to come over and sit next to me and talk to me. And I kept thinking he was going to want to rant and rave, but he didn't, and he was very nice. But during our debate, we had two pulpits, about like that, and they were about 15 feet apart, and there were hundreds of people there. And he said, the Gospels are too late to be trustworthy. I said, really? At plus 40? And the worst it is is plus 60? He said, yeah, that's way too late. So I said, what do you know about Alexander the Great? He said, we know a lot about Alexander the Great. Really? Yeah, he's from Macedon. His father was King Philip, very well known. Does anybody know? Some people have said this could be the most unique amalgamation of two geniuses from different fields in all of history. But if we count Alexander is probably the best military genius up until that time. Who was Alexander's tutor when he was growing up? Who was his personal tutor? Aristotle. Aristotle. Uh, well, see, you just told me something we know about, our, about Alexander. Well, because we got that in good data. Really? How about his battles? Yep. How about the way he taught the Greek phalanx, which brought down the mighty Persians and everything else. Yeah. And the fellow says, yeah, we know a lot about him. And I said, let me just ask you one more time. Mark's bad at 40. Yeah. And John's bad at 65. Yeah. Do you, want our, do you know what our earliest source? I don't mean a line in a rock. I mean a book. Do you know when our earliest major sources for Alexander's life? That's Alexander's death down there instead of Jesus. So it's a little more than three centuries B.C. And here's our, on this timeline, here's our earliest major source for Alexander. Now remember, this stuff is lousy, according to critics. This is too late. I can't go any further, but I would have to if I wanted to do this on accurate scale. The earliest book reporting the life of Alexander is just short of 300 years after the fact. And the best two sources are two historians called Plutarch and Arian. Plutarch and Arian are plus four and a quarter to 450. Now, I really don't know. Someone do this real fast for me if you would. You have a calculator there. How many times is 450 larger than 60? How many? Seven and a half. See, that didn't need a calculator. That's pretty sharp. Seven and a half times later to get the most reputable work on Alexander. And you're going to sit there and tell me the Gospels are too late in principle? Well, the Gospel writers were prejudiced. They believed. Oh, 
So people who wrote Alexander's story weren't pro-Greek Macedonian, technically. They weren't pro-Greek. They weren't anti-Persian. They didn't have a Western story to tell instead of an Eastern story to tell. No prejudice there. Oh, no, they were writing history. <laughs> they're doing the same thing these guys are, only they're way later. No, they're not doing the same thing these guys did. These guys wrote religious stories where Jesus was born of a virgin and things like that. See, that disqualifies you as writing history. Really? Here's Plutarch on Alexander, his birth. It was commonly believed that Alexander was the son of a god and his mother was a virgin. It is a good thing they were writing nothing but history and not religion. Do you know that almost no ancient Greco-Roman author wrote without the supernatural? You go, well, that's why we don't trust them, really? So now you just said you've written off all of British, Greek, Roman, you've written off all that history because they actually believed in gods. What if they're right to believe in gods and we're wrong to believe in gods? Why does that make somebody prejudiced? That's a whole other topic. I'm just saying, if you start looking around, the Gospels are looking pretty good. Guess what? The Gospels are coming back in today, and the predominant view is the Christian Gospels were Greco-Roman biographies. That's the most common view today. Greco-Roman biographies. All right, I'm going to stop the Gospels. I'm saying on this track, we're fine. It's early. We've got people who were there. We've got checks and balances, and we can get the resurrection. Now I'm going to start moving even earlier. And from this point on, everything I'm using would be from the critics' viewpoint. I am using material that they will concede, and concede unanimously. I'm going to go not from Mark and the Gospels. They're fine, but I'm going to use Paul who's earlier, and go this way, okay? Paul starts writing his epistles by 50 A.D., and it could be as early as 48 A.D. Do you realize that 48 is only 18 years after the cross? And 50, which is about as late as you'd go to start having Paul's epistles, is plus 20, plus 20. Everybody puts 1 Corinthians 15 that we referred to this morning at about, um, about 55 A.D., or a nice round 25 years. But, don't lose track of that important verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul says, I gave you what I was given. How do you do good history? Historians pass down material. And that Band of Brothers thesis that I used earlier, two heads are better than one, it's better to have multiple eyewitnesses than it is to have single eyewitnesses, and it's better to have them at an early date. 
Well, we're working that way. But I could quit right here. I could say, here's a list of six appearances from a mere 25 years later. But we could do way better than this. Paul says again, simple words, I gave you what I was given. Very easy, very simple, very profound. Here's what Paul's saying. Somebody else who knew what they were talking about gave me this material. Now, it's going to take me a long time to unpack this, but in the New Testament, I'm not going to be able to do it today. If somebody has a specific question, we could, we could do that. But in the New Testament, there are dozens, maybe 50 or 60 minimum, little tiny snippets, little tiny passages that are called, these are roughly synonyms. They're called creeds, confessions, formula, traditions. In fact, in your translation, whatever you have, there's probably some key ones in scripture that are set off in verse. When they're set off in verse, they are considered to be um, wrong book. In Philippians chapter 2, we have what most people believe is an early hymn. There's some other key passages in 1st 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and the texts are set apart. Now, if this, here's an example, I just, one just came here. First uh, Timothy chapter three, and if your translation is like mine, it ha- see it's set off in verse. You see that? You come upon that many times in the New Testament. Let me tell you why they do that. I don't mean why they put it in verse in your translation, but why does it read like that? In the Greek, why does it read like da 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 da? Why does it read like that? Well, very easy, very interesting answer. And it follows the concept of history. Sociologists, New Testament sociologists, have determined that in their opinion, 70 to 90% of Jesus' audience was probably illiterate. If you want to teach somebody something and they're illiterate, you put it in easily memorizable form is the best way you do it. Now there's different kinds. There's verse, there's music. Music's huge. Um, Depending on your age or depending on what you like in music. I mean, you know, think about something like the Beatles. I wanna hold your hand. You don't have to be literate to say the words of that song. Let's go back a bit. We were at the Luce's home yesterday, and we were looking at some, some um, music from the mid-Middle Ages, from Bernard of Clairvaux and Francis of Assisi. And you can sing these songs, right? All Creatures of Our God and King. Francis of Assisi. What was the song by Bernard of Clairvaux? Jesus, the very thought of thee. 
11th century. Now, can somebody be illiterate and sing the song and not miss a word, all creatures of our God and King? Sure, and be illiterate, right? Can't sign your name, but you can sing all creatures of our God and King, or the old rugged cross, or amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If a person can't read or write, we teach with memorization, spelling, verse, that puts things together. And there are dozens of these in the New Testament, and they're very, very early. They answer the question, what did the earliest apostles teach between the years 30 and 50 AD? When there were no New Testament books, what did the earliest apostles teach? It's maybe the most exciting question in the New Testament. You're asking about the earliest Christian preaching and teaching. I wanna know it's true, but if we're going back to 30 to 50, now we're going way inside that 20 year window, right, early, and eyewitness. All right, so here's Paul at 25, and he says, I gave you what I was given. The consensus New Testament position among believing New Testament scholars and critic, critical New Testament scholars. You say, there are critical New Testament scholars? This is one of the most incredible things in contemporary studies. We have a bunch of major atheist New Testament scholars, agnostic New Testament scholars, Jewish New Testament scholars, other religions, and they are specialists in their field, but it's not their faith. Now see, you've you removed a little bit of that ax to grind. Oh, you're just prejudiced. Uh, you live in the UK. You're Anglican, aren't you? Prejudice. You know, like that. No? See, I'm Jewish, thank you. Like Gezer Vermesh, professor of Jewish history. He's passed away now, but just a few years ago. Professor of Jewish history at Oxford University. And they believe that Paul received this message. There's the cross. Paul received this message about plus five. People want to complain about John at plus 65? How do you like five? We don't have five with Alexander. We don't have five with almost anybody in the ancient world. And we have two heads are better than one because we have several reports from in here. Several. Maybe six or eight. You go, do only religious people believe that? No. Bart Ehrman, who's probably the best known New Testament scholar, best known New Testament critic in the world, he calls himself an agnostic leaning toward atheism. He says, well, we'll show you what he says. He believes Paul got it here at plus five. But we can do way better than that. But first of all, you say, how do you know Paul got it? If you don't mind me asking, how do you know Paul got it plus five? Let's do the math. Here's ground zero. Paul, Paul's trip to Damascus is about one to two years after the cross. Maybe somebody, I'm sorry, about two to three years. Some do say one. But about two to three years after the cross, Paul's trip to Damascus. So, 
If you think Paul's conversion came a plus two, right here. In Galatians chapter one, which critics, I can answer this during Q&A if you want, but critics unanimously concede about seven of Paul's books, they won't argue with you about the authorship of them. And Galatians is one of them. And Paul says, three years later, I went up to, to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles. When did you come to Christ? Plus two. When did you go to Jerusalem? Plus three. To do what? To talk to the apostles. Two plus three? Five. Someone says, well, I think he was converted to plus three. Okay, great. Plus three. Three years later, he went up to Jerusalem. Three plus three, six. And that's the consensus New Testament position today. Not the sometime position. Not the position that's given in Christian churches and nowhere else. That's the consensus New Testament position that this material is given just five to six years after the cross. Now, as Galatians 1 runs into Galatians 2, Paul says, 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem again. This, is, this event is dated about 48, or a mere 18 years later after the cross. This is the beginning of Galatians 2. No critic, if you don't get this point, please ask me during the Q&A. It may be the simplest point of all, but it's the one people stumble on. And they'll say, yeah, but you're quoting the New Testament. You've got to get my point. If I don't quote the New Testament, the critics will. They have no problem quoting the New Testament. Yeah, it's a prejudiced book. Well, they're not prejudiced. They're not Christians. They're agnostic, they're atheists, they're Jewish, they're some other religion. They don't believe in Christianity. Why do they believe this? Early eyewitnesses. We've got good data. You're using the tools and rules of history. That's not a shovel, it's a fork. And you're doing the same thing with history. And they're gonna say what? 48 plus 18. And what's Paul doing there? Galatians 2.2 is a very strange verse. I went back up to Jerusalem again to lay before the apostles the gospel I was preaching to see if I was correct. If we're all, in, he doesn't say if we're all on the same page, but that's what he's saying. I went back up to Jerusalem to talk to those who were apostles before me. He calls them the pillars of the church to make sure we were all on the same page. You know, it'd be really nice if the earliest Christian authorities taught the same gospel, right? It would be a little confusing if somebody said, Deity, death, resurrection, and did you say I do to Jesus? And someone else says, Deity, death, resurrection, how many good works have you done this week? And somebody else says, Deity, death, resurrection, how many times have you been to church this year? You say, would you guys make up your mind? It's hard enough taking one of your exams when you give different answers. But critics are, they acknowledge what goes on here. Paul is with the disciples, and what happens? Well, tell us, Paul, don't hold us in suspense any longer. Are you all on the same page? That's Galatians 2.2. 2. 
Right after that, he says, in English, five words. They added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. What does that mean? That means you're all on the same page. And just a few verses later, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they say, you guys take this gospel to the Gentiles, and we'll continue here in Jerusalem to take it to the Jews. Now, I assume, I mean, maybe in your own church, we lay hands on people, right? We might send them out to the mission field. They might be ordained. Laying hands on them does not mean you're a loser. Laying hands on them doesn't mean you're a heretic and we're sending you to the mission field. Laying hands on them means we're putting our blessing on you to do the work of the Lord. And in verse 9, they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they say, go. We're preaching the same gospel. Take it to the Gentiles. At that early date, here's what we learn. They're all on the same page. Two heads are better than one. When Paul first went up to Jerusalem at plus five, maybe plus six, who's there? Paul. He said, I spent 15 days with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. These are three of the, most, of the four most influential Christians in the early church. These are three of the big four. One of the 12, Peter, and two who subsequently become apostles, Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, James. But in Galatians 2, when he comes back, guess who's there? Still Paul, still Peter, still James, and now the fourth most influential Christian is there, John, the son of Zebedee. Two of the 12, Peter and John, and the two early, I don't want to call them add-ons, but the two who, were, who became apostles later, Paul, and they may be the more influential ones, hard to say, but Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. The four, nobody is close to as authoritative as they are. So we've got the two heads are better than one. We've got four heads are better than one. And we've got the big four. You know, who would you be talking about in World War II? Churchill, Eisenhower. Depends on what kind of events you're talking about. But if you've got the big guys there, you have a general from out in the field somewhere who was there, who led the troops, and you have the, the anonymously acknowledged four top scholars, and they're all telling the same thing. Maybe they're writing a book together on the armistice, on, you know, when the newspaper said the war is over. And they're telling what it's like. And they're the most authoritative ones. Maybe it's not the generals and the prime ministers. Maybe it's the best known historians who have majored in this material all their lives. And they put out a book 
with the top four. Well, that's what we have in the New Testament. We have the top four from here. We have three of them from here. And they're all on the same page. Paul says it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, same chapter we already used. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11. I love this verse. Paul's talking about the other apostles and what they taught about the appearances. And he said they saw the risen Jesus. They were witnesses. And he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul's saying, I don't care who you go to. You want to talk to somebody about the center of your faith? The deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus? You want to talk to somebody who knows it? I don't care. Go to Peter. Go to John. Go to James. Come to me. I'll spend an afternoon with you. Go to one of us. Why does he say he doesn't care? Because they're all on the same page. Whether it is I or they, so we speak and so you believe. And the next few verses, here's what he says. If we're wrong, we're preaching in vain. If we're wrong, we're false witnesses. They're all together in this. See what's going on? Early, 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 early. And not just eyewitnesses, the best eyewitnesses are here. We can do better than five. This is when Paul heard it. Peter and James had the testimony proper of all the apostles seeing Jesus before Paul got it, right? Peter and James had it before Paul had it. Paul hears it. They had it. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.3 is the the most famous da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da text in the New Testament. It is a tightly written creed. Critics unanimously concede this. I can tell you what critics do, and you go, oh my. You say, well, does Dawkins? Dawkins doesn't know what he's talking about. No, I'm serious. Dawkins is out of his field. You don't ask a biologist when you don't want to know something about church history. I don't care how liberal the guy is. He could be an atheist, but he's got to be a specialist in theology, Greek, classics, history. He's got to be, he has to know how to do this discipline. You don't ask your paper boy to pull a tooth for you. We go to people who are trained in the field. But I'm, what I'm telling you is, I don't care if he's an atheist. He'll tell you the same thing. And what is it again? Paul got it here. They knew their testimony before Paul had it. It takes a little while to get a message and to put it into a da 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 framework. A couple of British scholars... If you read this material, you know the name Jimmy Dunn, James D.G. Dunn, Durham. As influential a name today as there is. Durham, I mean, Jimmy Dunn of Durham says, the oldest this report could be is a few months later. A few months. 
Larry Hurtado, he's American, but he's lived forever in Scotland. He was the head of the department at Edinburgh University. Larry Hurtado just said, days afterwards, here's the cross, days. Jimmy Dunn says, a few months. Five years is fantastic. Peter and John having it earlier is fantastic. It coming at the coming together in a dot da dot da dot da dot form at days or a few months later is unbelievable. You say, critics believe this? Yes, they do. Bart Ehrman, best known skeptic, best known New Testament skeptic in the West. He dates this coming, becoming a creed at one to two years after the cross. He's a little later than Dunn's months and Hurtado's days, but he says one to two years. By the way, this is just an aside. This is a footnote, an informational footnote. The world is full of people. I've got to go back home and talk to somebody, a non-Christian, who holds that Paul perverted Christianity. You've heard this before. Jesus was a humble peasant who believed everything in the Old Testament. Paul's the hypocrite, he blew everything up. Here's scholars today, here's the answer to that. <clears throat> oh, you're a believer. No, I'm talking about unbelievers. <clears throat> Paul didn't do that. How do you know? Because the material that is in this early period, you know what they call the material from here? Here's Paul's, well, here's Paul's conversion. Do you know what they tell, call the material from Paul's conversion to the cross, right in there? They call it pre-Pauline data. It was around before Paul was converted. Critics call it pre-Pauline data. The material in 1 Corinthians 15 is definitely, if we're sure of anything in the New Testament, it's that one. It's pre-Pauline. How could Paul have made it up when the center of the story predates him when he was still a persecutor of the church? I'm telling you folks, historically, this is a tight argument. It's tight. Let me just end with a thought or two here and open up for questions. Why don't the critics believe then? If it's what you say it is, and even the critics believe this, they believe the data, shouldn't they be getting married to Jesus? Shouldn't they be saying, I do, to Jesus? Well, they should be. Why aren't they? I get this question a lot. Probably the two most common questions I get is, why do you keep quoting from the New Testament if you're trying to be skeptical? Because I only use the verses that the skeptics allow. And they'll use them if you don't because they think they're accredited text. Think of this, think this, what if I'm doing a master's degree in history and my master's thesis is known historical verses from Homer's Iliad? Yeah, but Homer's just poetry. But some of it is, they're accurate reports about the ancient world. That's how I'm doing it. Remember I used the Bible from down here, the one that said it's not reliable. And I get that from this Bible. How do you know? Because everybody who's down here believes all that. 
Okay, second most common question. Now I know why you use the book, you use their verses. Yep. Why don't they believe? Very easy answer. Because most of us, almost all of us, do not decide questions by the facts. You may think you do, especially you men, to be frank. Talk about this. This leads right into the next lecture because we talk about emotional doubt. And for a lot of men, their patron saint, if they're old enough, their patron saint is Mr. Spock on Star Trek. <laughs> Live long and prosper. You know, I was really shook up when he died. I had a bad few days. I didn't think Spock could die. And they think, they think Spock is the way thinking, at least men, right, should be. But in real life, all of us have emotional fears. And this is more important. All of us have worldviews. I refer to worldviews as the color of our glasses. We say that liberals, the, like political liberals, have rose-colored glasses. They look at the world positively. We all have glasses. The reason people don't come to Christ is because their worldview is more important to them than the data. And they know what comes next. If they say the data are good, someone's going to say, are you ready to marry Jesus? That's a tough one. Some of them do, oh, they almost all admit the data and just say, I cut it off right there. I don't ask belief questions. That's because you don't want to ask belief questions. So, I will end with that thought. I think this is the basis for our faith. It really is. And if, if the center of our faith is the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus, and we have it that strongly, where we have multiple heads being better than one, at the very earliest date, a lot of other evidences, too, we can talk about. But this comes, well, it's well attested. Don't ever think that your faith, it's, I'm a, I suspect my own faith because it's my faith. But faith can be based on fact. Faith is either based on true facts or false facts. And if you ascertain it as being true, our faith is true. Let me end with the words of our Lord. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 19. Because I live, you shall live also. I tell people, this is about the yellow brick road. If the resurrection is true, we should be walking down the path from that point on because we need to deal with other people. What needs are there in the world? There's people who need to be fed. Jesus said the second greatest command in the world. Second greatest, love your neighbors yourself. The only one that's greater is to love God as you with everything you have. But if it's true, we don't just sit there and go, thanks for that. Now I'm going to keep living life the way I live it. Now the next question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to walk down that path? Let's see what kind of comments or questions you might have. Thank you, Gary. I've got loads. I'm sure lots and lots of you in the audience have questions. Um, anyone want to kick us off and start? 
They're all stunned, Gary. Yeah, <laughs> Please, you know, ask any question. It doesn't necessarily, I've been told this by Peter, it doesn't necessarily have to be about this particular lecture. Just ask any questions because yeah, actually he's great at answering. After Peter promised that, he came up and told me he said that. He didn't ask me <laughs> if it was okay. He said, do it. You talked about these little snippets that are created, these little creeds. Yep. What I was trying to work out was how do you how do you do, do these scholars actually recognise them for being that? What how do you recognise them? Yeah. What are the, what's in the manuscripts that make you think they are these little things that were put together? So I didn't follow that. Okay. Question is, what is in the manuscript that makes you realise these dot da dot da dot patterns? First thing, before I even answer the question, the amazing thing is that both left and right critics across the board, they agree where these things are. That's just amazing. Someone told me the other day, it was Lee Strobel, if you know the name Lee Strobel from Case for Christ. Lee wrote to me and he said, somebody just asked me if I could publish a list of 40 creeds, but, I, but they're not mine, it's your list. He said, I quoted you, so can I have that list? I said, I didn't make a list like that. He said, yes you did, it's in your historical Jesus book pages. I went back and looked. I wrote that book 20 years ago. I said, wow, I did put a list in there. I've got a list of 40 of them, but if I were to do it today, I would probably have 60 of them. But I don't just have a list in my, in my notes, that's not in the book, in my notes, for the book. I not only have the 60, I have the critical scholars who admit them, and I didn't use any creeds that the critics didn't agree with. Okay, now how do you recognize them? This one's rough, but you have to be really good in Greek. <laughs> so good that you can see syntactical changes while you're reading. Now, there's, a, there's probably 10 different ways to pick these things out. But one of them would be this. Maybe this is one of the easiest ways to get to it. If you grade papers, I teach only PhD students. So I require highly researched papers that are publishable. And you know, even on the best papers, you know, when students try to use, get the tense that they're using, and then they throw a big quote in there from somebody important, and they can't get the language here to lead into the quote properly. So they play around with it. They can't change the quote. They can change their words, but they can't change the author's words. So they're writing it in, and they can't get the thing to line up, and so they go, I don't have time for this. And they just stick the quote there, put the footnote down there, go on. And the professor, if he reads it, puts in the margin, awkward. <laughs> or the professor says, awkward transition. A lot of the creeds in the New Testament, they have awkward transitions. Another sign is, a lot of the Greek terms in the creedal passages are not the author's words. How do you know? If it's an author that we have a good body of data on, why is it that in 30, 40, 50 pages, they never use that word? That's somebody else's vocabulary. That's another way. Sometimes they, they use the technical words for passing on tradition. For example, Paul says, I gave you that which I also received. He just told you, right? He did, just, he did you a favor. He said, I gave you what was given to me. Now, you know what's interesting about this? Pharisees taught by 
passing on tradition. Who tells us that? Josephus, Jewish historian. Who passes on tradition? Pharisees. What was Paul? Pharisee. How would Paul teach? Passing on tradition. And he says, I'm passing on tradition. That's a pretty tight argument for he's passing on tradition. <laughs> now, that's 1 Corinthians 15. Let's back up four chapters. 1 Corinthians 11. Your pastor's probably read it many, many, many times in this church. And here's how this one goes. I deliver unto you that which I also received. The only different words are from the Lord. I deliver unto you that which I also received from the Lord. And you'll recognize these words. The same night in which Jesus was betrayed, took bread. And when he broke it, he gave thanks, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Notice how that was introduced. I gave you what I was given. Three times in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we're passing this on. Other times in the New Testament, these phrases, like the one I got from Timothy, it'll say things like, here is a trustworthy saying. Or it'll say, observe the traditions of the elders. He even uses the word we still use, tradition. So it's a whole lot of ways. The way the syntax is, the way the word structure, the vocabulary. The best one is when the author tells you this material is not mine. Think of it this way. A creed in the New Testament, in a research paper today, it's something you would have to footnote or it would be plagiarism. When they tell you, I gave you what I was given, they are footnoting it. That's a footnote. This isn't my material. That's their footnote. So there's a lot of different ways, but it's something. Bottom line, if you know the ways or don't, or you don't read Greek or don't read Greek, the bottom line is the critics. By the way, the critics are better at where these verses are than the believers are. You know why? Because believers have this view that everything in the Bible is the Word of God. Why do I care if it's a real early creed or a 50 AD creed or a John creed? It's all true. It's the critics who come along and they're more critical and they go, what's the data for this? And they're going to give preference to your earlier statements. Isn't that cool the way it all lines up? They found these things and believers conservatives are only now coming into this material. You could do a PhD dissertation on this. It's fantastic stuff. There you go. Thanks. Yeah, you talked about the barriers that skeptics face. Now, I'm sure that over your many years and the number of people you've debated with and known, you know, who've been skeptics and non-believers, you must have seen some of them come to faith. So, I mean, I wonder if you could perhaps relate a little bit about that and also to say some, to give us some advice maybe as to how we can help people over those barriers. Because, you know, we all come against, up against people who've got their own arguments, their own reasons, their own worldviews that stop them. Well, uh, what how do barrier? We get them help, helping them to say, I do? Yeah. Great question. How do we help critics? How do we get them over their own objections and get them to the I do point when it comes to Jesus? Um, you know, just the other day, I've never done this before. But coming over in the plane, you know, you have a lot of time to doodle. I'm not, a movie, I'm not a movie watcher. So I was sitting there and I took a sheet of paper and I wrote down what critics I have had a meal with or sat down with, talked face to face, multiple talks. And there were like 30. Jimmy Dunn, Anthony Flew, the famous atheist, um, many, many others, about 30 of them. 
And you know when you talk to them? This is just a key of any kind of talking. It's hard to power somebody into the kingdom with facts alone. Now, I could use American football example. I guess your example might be soccer or rugby or something like that. But if I sit down with my best friend, remind me of the two famous teams in English soccer, Chelsea, and who's their arch rival? Who is it? And I could say, who's who, right? Okay. This guy's your best friend. You're sitting down over coffee. And you're telling the guy his team stinks and he should believe your team. Chances are you're not going to convert him, are you? Um, doesn't happen like that. Worldviews are more important than facts. And they're going to have that view too. But what helps them over the bump? With anybody, facts plus friendship is hard to beat. I said to one of the best-known atheists in the world, actually he's a former evangelical, but he's a very virulent atheist. He's often pretty mean to people, but he and I are friends and he would never treat me that way. So I said to him, he's a big football fan, American football, and I said to him, because I got to know him a little bit, right? So you can say this to your friends. I said, I wished you lived next door to me and you could come over every Sunday and we would watch both of our teams. I said, and while we're watching our teams, we can talk about the Lord. I told him this, he's an ex-evangelical, he's got two evangelical master's degrees. And I said, we can talk about the Lord. And then I said this, little, little masculine taunt, right? I said, at the end of that football season, we're both going to believe the same thing. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not converting to atheism. And he started laughing. He thought that was funny. He started laughing. Yep, that's, fun. that's good. That's good. You know what he said to me one time? He snuck in. I was speaking, and it was a big auditorium, and I just gave this lecture. I saw him walk in the back door. Famous atheist. And he came up to me when I was done, and he said, you know, that's a pretty simple lecture. Now, simple could mean put down, right? He said, that was a pretty simple lecture, comma, and I don't have a clue how to answer the data. So I go, I know him well enough to say, well, then you probably want to give your life to the Lord, don't you? Because I do this with the guys all the time. And he laughs, and yeah, that's cute. But he doesn't want to because he was hurt when he was in the church. There was a big event in his life, and frankly, he hates the way Christians behave. That's what's standing. So, so I'd say friendship is a biggie. Patience is a biggie. Um, telling the guy over and over again he doesn't have any evidence for his viewpoint, and all the evidence is on your side. Here's another one. There's a lot of secular songs, groups, statements. What was that? Was it a rock song? I don't know. Was it a movie theme? I don't know. In the, in the 1980s, I Want to Live Forever. Remember that song? I Want to Live Forever. A lot of people want to live forever. And I would use one hook 
is to use eternity. I would start talking to them about the yellow brick road and aren't they interested in Oz? I use that phrase all the time about the yellow brick road and Oz because it's something to work, walk. And to... So I try to throw these other things in. I try to put things on a hook. Friendship, patience, time, eternity. Because like you can't convince your friend in, in soccer to come over to your side today because you have the best team. You're not going to convince the atheist that way either because they don't make choices based on the facts. They base choices on where their heart is. And they could have the worst team in the league could be their team. They're probably not going to change. That tells you something. If they're going to keep voting for the worst team, what is going on here? <laughs>